This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dean Unava, Rao. First, welcome to UC Davis. You've been here since the spring. I hope you're enjoying being here. Is there anything that you've observed or that has struck you about the campus or area since you arrived? I can't uh, deny the fact that there is a little bit more sunshine here than in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think the, the biggest uh, uh, and most remarkable surprise for me was uh, the happiness that I see here in people, uh, which is pretty palpable. I can feel it and it influences my own day every day because I'm happy because of you, you people who are happy. And that's an environment that is not very common out there. I've been to many schools uh, giving talks and whatnot. There is a, a feeling of uh, a burden being shared uh, in people's uh, countenance and that's not what I see here. There's somehow uh, joy but at the same time, there is a lot of uh, efficiency in people getting stuff done at the same time. So it's, 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 diff- it's difficult for me to explain, but when I talk to people, I say that when I'm talking, I don't even know if the other person is getting what I'm asking for, but two hours later, it's already done, and they're still smiling. <laughs> so that's the biggest surprise that I had, that there is a culture here that I heard about when I was in India, dreamt about being part of it when I was in India, landed up in Columbus, Ohio, but ultimately found the place I think I should be at. Wow. That's great. I think we actually earned a ranking of one of the happiest campuses in the United States. So, All right, so you've studied brand loyalty across your career. Can you provide a brief overview of brand loyalty uh, and how it might differ in higher education from the traditional business world? Sure. So um, one of the first uh, distinctions we have to make is that loyalty, as defined, is more behavioral. Uh, We define it based on repeat purchase behavior, repeat behavior. So when you say somebody is loyal, it means that they're doing the same thing to favor whatever the object is. It could be loyalty in a relationship where I'm taking care of my partner regularly and doing the same thing over and over again. The antecedent of loyalty, theoretically speaking, is what we call commitment. And that is actually the variable that we, we study quite a bit of. Um, loyalty can be easily changed with the, the right incentive system. Uh, I know I continue to root for Ohio State uh, football team even now, but I would assume that six paychecks later, it will be a little less rooting of the team. <laughs> So loyalty can be bought, uh, whereas commitment is a lot more difficult uh, to be bought. And in order for us to get loyalty in the consumer, and I'll keep talking about consumer because that's a familiar domain for me, but it's equally transferable to any domain that we're working in, and I'll come back to it as needed. But to, to, to get the loyalty in the consumer, it's much better for us to focus on developing a sense of commitment in the consumer towards the brand, whatever that is, and once that commitment happens, then things follow quite naturally. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, when it comes to products versus higher education, I see higher education more as an experience. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a product in, in a way, but it's not the tangible, tied, detergent kind of a product. It's more of an experience on campus for a student. It's experience on campus for a recruiter who comes here hoping to find talent. 
It's experience for the parents who come here because they are letting go of a child they have brought up for 18 years and they want to make sure that this is a safe place for them. So uh, it, it's, it's also an experience that's longitudinal. It's over a period of time. And therefore, uh, we have actually more opportunities to create commitment in the consumer uh, than a typical purchase uh, where somebody goes and buys uh, a brand or goes to a restaurant to try it out. If something doesn't work out, you don't just don't go back. Whereas here, the student at least comes back to finish the course, and we have multiple opportunities to take care of the student or the parent or the recruiter and make it good for them. So it's actually a, a better position that we are in in the field of education to create commitment in, in people. That's great. Thank you. We'll touch on that again a mm -hmm. little more deeply later on. You've examined loyalty in relation to brand consideration sets. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an overview of how that relationship works and if you see it applying to higher education? Sure. Um, so the phenomenon of consideration sets, and I'm sure there are many people here who have taken marketing as uh, one of the courses uh, as you uh, entered this profession. Uh, it, 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 there is a process that people go through when they finally make their choice of whatever they are, they are buying. Uh, <clears throat> if it is uh, choosing a school, if it is choosing a brand, if it is choosing a partner, whatever things are, there is a, a whole host of options available. And the question is, uh, what are you going to consider at a given point in time? What's interesting is that uh, even though we have several decision aids that are available to us, uh, for example, if I have to choose a college, I can just go online and I can go to some website that lists all the colleges that are available for me to choose from. However, Consumers still rely on their memory quite a bit. In fact, in a survey of purchasing managers in 1,500 companies around the country, they were asked how they go about inviting people to send bids for something. And they said, well, we remember the people that we have done business with, and then we go back to them asking them to put a bid in. Still based on memory quite a bit. And therefore, the consideration set that forms is driven by one's memory for what they have seen, heard, and whatnot. The, the role of consideration set is very critical because there is research to show that if a brand, option, whatever you call it, does not appear in the consideration set of a consumer, it has less than 1% chance of being chosen ultimately. And this is research done at MIT, uh, and, and, and there are many other uh, streams of research that have looked at the importance of consideration set. So by definition, uh, consideration set is not one brand. It is a set of brands that you would consider for yourself. And, and therefore, the first step for any brand is to get into the consideration set because otherwise you have only 1% chance of being chosen. But the second step is once I got into the consideration set, can I increase the probability that I get chosen over the other brands in the consideration set? And that's where loyalty becomes important because what it does is it shrinks the consideration set. So the probability that you get chosen uh, is much higher. If uh, a... a we have done research to show, for example, that if uh, uh, consumers are less committed to their favorite brand, so let's assume that I buy Tide detergent on a regular basis, but my level of commitment to the brand is not as high, and there are measures for commitment that we can talk about later, compared to another consumer who has a very high level of commitment to the brand. If you measure the consideration set of these people, we find that, the, for me, it may be three brands for this other person, it may be one and a half brands on average. 
In other words, we have increased the probability of choosing, of the consumer choosing our brand just because we have shrunk their consideration set. And that's one of the biggest advantages that we derive from having committed consumers out there because they are not considering other brands. And it's also interesting to see, and there is some research we have completed on that, that if a consumer is committed to a brand, then the other options that are available in the marketplace look less attractive. It just happens that way. There's an old study we actually cite where they uh, stopped men on campus um, who were either in a committed relationship or not in a committed relationship. And then they had a confederate and uh, somebody who was helping them with the research, an attractive woman who was asked to go back and forth. And they would ask these men to uh, tell us how attractive they think this person is. It was interesting because people who were in a committed relationship rated that person as less attractive than people who were not in a committed relationship. So just because you're committed to something, it is enough to make other options available out there less attractive to you. And so we saw that same behavior with brands where we would actually take people who are committed to their favorite brand and less committed to their favorite brand and show them an advertisement for a third brand. And it was interesting to see that once this person is committed to their brand, they find that particular advertisement offensive, bad, and say bad things about the ad, whereas the less committed people seem to be fine with that advertisement. So it's very interesting that if we have a committed UC Davis student, uh, or at least a high schooler who is committed to UC Davis, even if MIT is trying to say, I'll give you so much more money, it looks like a crass appeal to my uh, you know, lower senses. They have to do better than that. So it's interesting that commitment has those kinds of biased processing effects as well, which is great for us uh, if we can develop that committed consumer. So if you become an iconic brand, even one through just being a sports team, you may, by default, enter into a consideration set just because of the familiarity, and then that would give you an advantage that you might get weeded out later on, but just having that familiarity gives you an advantage? Oh, definitely that, uh, the, the familiarity of a brand makes it uh, salient in people's memories, and brand's, brand salience is related to its being considered. There's mm -hmm. no question. However, uh, just because a brand comes to memory doesn't mean it is always considered. It may just come in and go away. Uh, <clears throat> what does uh, seem to be closely related to consideration is the attitude that consumers have towards the brand. So if I am positively predisposed towards the brand, then it's more likely that I will consider that brand. And so more than memory, one has to have a solid product. And as people already know, good marketing starts with a good product. Uh, if you, and then there's that old saying, nothing kills a bad product faster than good marketing. Right? Because if the product is not good, then what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So when you think about independent product or brand rankings influencing consumer choice sets, such as U.S. news rankings, mm -hmm. um, how, how does that play out? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a good question, because if you assume that as a consumer I believe in rankings, I also start developing an affinity towards those schools which have higher rankings. So my attitude towards schools which are higher ranked is more positive than schools that are lower ranked. And therefore, the chance of a brand being considered based on attitude, as I had mentioned earlier, is higher for higher ranked schools. So if, if you ask somebody, which schools are you considering, if they are somebody who is a national merit uh, scholar and uh, has 
all fives on AP courses. It's very rare to imagine somebody saying, I'm not going to uh, Ivy League schools or Stanford or whatever the school is. And, and therefore, yes, rankings do have an impact on people's consideration of a brand. However, what is the brand that you ultimately choose may not be driven only by rankings. So rankings are a powerful uh, variable that affects brand consideration, but they don't end up uh, an effect on the final choice as much. So let's assume I have uh, five brands that I have considered. They could be the Ivy League schools, but they are ranked in a certain way. Maybe the first school I have in mind, let's say, is, uh, is a Harvard. It's ranked number one. And then there is a fourth school that I have, which is a uh, uh, Cornell, which may be ranked number 12. And then the question is, uh, do I go to Cornell or MIT just based on the ranking of some, somebody or Harvard? Somebody might predict I go to Harvard, but it's entirely possible that somebody visits the two campuses, looks at the experience they might have, and may choose Cornell at that point. Mm -hmm. So rankings gets you into the consideration set, but it's actually what happens after that that determines what brand you choose. And so it's not a bad idea to pursue rankings because you need to be considered first in order to be chosen. But it's not enough to pursue rankings because you have to deliver on something for students to end up choosing that. And we know from our experience here that getting the students actually to the campus, to that physical experience, Correct. is profound in, in terms of helping them make a decision and, and disposing them more towards making a decision towards UC Davis. That's right. And that is actually also connected to something called the endowment effect that people might have uh, read about. When you touch something, you start feeling that it is yours. And therefore, you can't let go. And a simple study that people do in this case, and you can do it yourself at home, and you'll find it works on everybody, is when you uh, give, they, they, they would give a person uh, a vase to hold, a, a cup to hold, and then they ask the person, do you like it? And so, oh, yeah. And, oh, you can keep it if you want. I mean, this, this is fine. And the guy goes, thank you. Then the next question is, well, you know what? I may actually need that back for something. I'm sorry I, I gave it to you, but uh, I would like to buy it back. So how much would you need for you to give it back to me? So that's one question. A second question is where I don't offer it to you, but I just show you the cup and say, how much are you willing to pay for this cup? Well, what do you expect? Those two should be the same price because it's the same cup. But the moment you touched it, for people to give it back to you, they ask you for 30 to 40% more money than what they're willing to pay for the cup, just by touching it. So when you bring them to campus and make them feel that they own this campus, they're part of this, they're not willing to give it away. That's great. And that gets back to what you're saying at the very beginning about all the different opportunities that we have That's right. on the campus. That's that right. The more that we bring them back, the That's more right. that we can engage in That's as well. Right. Mm -hmm. That's great. You've written about how high commitment or loyal consumers have psychological contracts mm -hmm. with brands that influence their judgment of the brands. Uh, so what sort of enhanced expectations do you believe that higher education consumers, such as alumni and students, have? Uh, the psychological contracts uh, is, is something that we kind of stumbled into because uh, we were puzzled by something that happened to Tropicana orange juice in 2009. They changed the carton. If you guys remember, they have that uh, orange with a straw in it that was the carton for years and years and years. And at least a whole generation knew nothing different from that. And they decided to modernize that, in which all brands go through. And the uh, 
amount of negative reaction to the change of the curtain design was unbelievable. And ultimately, two months later, they actually had to bring back the old curtain. And the CEO at that time said, we had no idea that people were so committed to the curtain. And they were, they were, they were upset, and they said they would leave the brand because we did not consult with them before we changed the curtain. I said, consult with you for me to change my curtain that I'm selling? So it was a very puzzling thing. So I said, why does the consumer actually expect to be consulted for a company to change its curtain? I'm buying the juice here. So that led us into uh, the literature on psychological contracts. And we came across this very interesting phenomenon where we all have expectations. We have expectations about the brand. If you're in UC Davis, you expect the school to take care of you in a certain way. That's fine. <clears throat> but when it goes beyond that, where the commitment level goes up, then you think that the school actually has promised you something even though it was never promised to you. You think it was a contract that was made with you. When the contract you can read, it's not there. And you say, no, 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 it was meant that way. I, I, you can read whatever you want, but that's exactly what the school was telling me. So those are what are called implicit contracts, not explicit contracts. And these implicit contracts are psychological contracts, not just expectations. Expectations are all over the place. But where you believe that a contract actually exists when it doesn't exist as a highly committed consumer, when that contract is violated, which means some element of that has not been taken care of, you actually change from being a brand ambassador to a brand terrorist. It's <laughs> amazing. People actually go and try to kill the brand just because this implicit contract was broken. And the marketer is sitting here saying, I never promised you that. So we found actually in several places uh, with our research that simple things which really have no final effect on your uh, uh, decision to patronize that brand continuously still make people leave the brand because they feel that a contract has been broken. And then you say the contract was never made with you. You say, no, it's fine. You can say whatever. But as far as I'm concerned, you broke the contract. And it's very important for us because parents have certain expectations, but they also believe if they're committed. So I have uh, uh, experienced there is a huge uh, following uh, when I was at Ohio State, uh, that being the flagship university in the state of Ohio, and then the Buckeyes being what they are, football-wise and whatnot, that attachment that people have to the team is unbelievable. And with that comes certain, certain things that we have to be very careful about because people assume certain things, and if we don't fulfill those things, they would be very unhappy with us. And, and so from our perspective, as we are developing these committed consumers, we should also be aware of the fact that we are developing some ultra-sensitive souls out there who might be upset if some little things don't go the way they think it should go. And, and so that is the message that we came up with, saying, my God, we, we had no idea that somebody could be that strong about something that we, we believe is relatively trivial. And, and, and uh, to study those contracts amongst committed consumers. So if you have donors, for example, mm -hmm. it's a classic case. Uh, we would have donors who give money and then don't bother me. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm glad I could help kind of thing. And there are people who expect certain things to happen after giving the money. 
And uh, those expectations are not about themselves. They just expect you, sh- you would do things which will improve the rankings, whatever that is. Or uh, it could be something as simple as, well, there was an event that happened at the school and I didn't know about it. And I feel that I'm not valued anymore, so I'll stop giving. It's like, no. There was an email sent to everybody. Maybe you changed your email. Fine, but it's your job to find it. So it's interesting that once they're committed, small aberrations like that are enough to turn them off completely. And so we have to be extra, extra careful with highly committed consumers because on one hand, they are extremely uh, beneficial to the brand that we are trying to cultivate. On the other hand, when you turn them off, they actually can become pretty difficult people to deal with. And I think as a, as a brand manager, I mean, we are aware, in, particularly in higher education, of the sensitivities around changing the brand. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it feels like it's the ultimate implicit contract in a way because it's a shared Correct. experience. And so if you violate it and, you know, one person gets set off by it, there may be many, many who are set off by it as well. So. That's right. And it also looks like all that they're asking for is participation. Mm-hmm. And it's not a difficult thing to do just making sure that they hear about what we are trying to do, have a chance to give feedback, with the expectation that just because you gave me feedback doesn't mean we'll do it. It's simple that you know, we are listening to you, and then we'll make a decision. That's adequate in most cases. Great. So this leads into this question, I think, well, are there tactics that higher education communicators could try in order to increase brand engagement and loyalty in their constituents? So I'll go back to commitment for that, uh, because loyalty is behavior, as I said. So there are three kinds of commitment that people uh, uh, exhibit. One is what uh, is called (coughs) calculative commitment. (coughs) There, you are buying a brand or a service because it's the best option you have at that time, given everything else. I have this much money, or I have this much grades, Um, This is my financial position and so on. So this is the best brand I can afford at this point, and that's what you buy. So you keep buying that as long as nothing else changes. But that commitment is easy to disrupt because if there is a competitor who comes in and provides better value and convinces you that, yes, there is better value, then all of a sudden you switch. And the easiest example I can give you is that Um, I would like to drive and go to a gas station that is on the right-hand side of the road. And so I keep going to that person all the time. One may view this as a commitment because loyalty-wise, I'm exhibiting very high loyalty to that particular person. I'm repeatedly going to the same gas station. One fine morning, that person decides that I want to expand, but there's no space here. I'll move to the left side. And I stop going because something on the right is more important to me. So it's a calculative commitment. The second is what is called normative commitment. And normative commitment is where we do something just because it's the right thing to do. Uh, When uh, my uh, son started a company and he came and asked me um, if if I had any advice for him or anything that I want him to do, and my response, uh, one of the responses was, hey, if there is a possibility of you manufacturing that here and not go outside of the country, please do that. And he asked me why, and I said, I don't know. I'm a citizen of this country, and I want stuff to happen here. It's the right thing for me. So you can shake me up on that saying, well, you know, probably you don't have the manufacturing and whatnot, but the commitment just makes me say what I said without any more thinking about it. 
that commitment also is shakeable <clears throat> because it's built on some belief that has never been questioned by you. Once I start questioning that belief, then things start happening. The third kind of commitment is the one that we all strive to build because that's unshakable and it is one of the biggest boons you can get from your consumers and it's called affective commitment. Affect by definition is linked with emotion. So there are people who develop, and it's called sometimes irrational because it's not explainable, but <clears throat> that's what it is. People have this uh, emotional reaction to a certain uh, brand, a school, a team, whatnot, and they can't explain why it is what it is, but they cannot go away from that brand. So I, I always uh, give an example which is irrational. You will notice that very quickly, but it's there. <clears throat> so when I was growing up, we were growing up in a modest income family, and uh, things were not as easy. Um, my dad used to take my sister and I to a movie once every year. <clears throat> so we would see one movie a year. And uh, when we went there, uh, he, he really wanted to take care of us. He wanted to give things to us. And when I was growing up, Coca-Cola was a luxury product for us. So if, I, if you asked me, what was your dream? In those days, my dream was to hold a bottle of Coke in my hand and show off that I have made it in my life, right? So we walk into this theater, we watch the movie, and these are Indian movies, so there's always an intermission because they are three hours long, otherwise you won't get your money's worth, <laughs> right? <clears throat> so we would watch the movie, and when the intermission happened, my dad would bring one bottle of Coca-Cola with two straws in it and give it to me and my sister. And then you knew that that was this one Coca-Cola that you're going to drink for, until the next year. And you want to drink as fast as possible. It's cold. It's giving you a brain freeze. And uh, we would headbutt each other just to make sure that the other person is thrown off a little bit to get more Coke into the body. <laughs> That's it. And, and then it's over. You come back, and then you're waiting for the next year where you can repeat the performance. That memory is what I have of Coca-Cola. And I can never make myself drink Pepsi because it's, it's, not, it's not my family. It's not me. So that kind of irrational attachment to a brand is what people say is affective commitment. And that's what we all try to bring. That can be built only through experience. So the more we provide experience that is consistent with the person's uh, value system, experiences, uh, expectations, everything, the more commitment that people build when they are here. And it's true that uh, when you look at uh, the donor portfolio of many schools, 90% of the donors are those who had an undergrad degree from the school rather than a grad degree from the school. Because that's where a lot of emotional work happens. People go to college as a passage. Of, yeah, that's what everybody does. But then they really get bonded with the school and the people, and they emotionally are connected to the school. They can't explain it anymore, but they're emotionally connected. That leads them to be loyal to the school. And so one can criticize my grad program that I went to, and I will argue, well, no, it was not that bad. But if you criticize my undergrad program, I'll fight. Mm -hmm. right? So that's the irrationality that we're talking about. And that's what we try to develop in, in education as well. And it sounds like, again, the, the in-person experiences are a very powerful way to maybe build those. You can't recreate what happened 
before, but you can create a new experience. That is right. And it's the creativity of what we do. And then this notion of this expectancy disconfirmation models we all read about. Now, there is this literature on satisfaction that talks about how people come with expectations. And then if you disconfirm them, which means you either have exceeded them or you have not exceeded them, that results in either satisfaction or, or, or dissatisfaction. When, uh, uh, that's why we are worried about building something up through advertising because you're raising uh, the expectation level. And when that happens, if your performance doesn't match those expectations, even though it's great, they still would not feel happy. So when I remember going to Ohio State games where you won by like 12 points and they say, man, yeah, that was not a good game. <laughs> <coughs> These are good teams you're beating by 12 points. Well, I thought they'll beat them by 40 points. That's the expectation. So what we try to do, which uh, uh, Warren Buffett always talks about, is this customer delight that we have heard so many times. And that delight comes when the expectations are exceeded by performance. So it doesn't mean that we put low expectations in people's minds, because that's dangerous too. Then people say, why would I want to go there? That's mm -hmm. so low. So we have to manage the process in such a way that we actually can exceed the expectations we set, whatever those expectations are. And if they're low to begin with, we try to make sure the product is a good product because we want to raise the expectations, but also perform in a way to exceed them. That formula is as simple as that is. It seems to work wonders in many cases. Oh. All right, last question, then we'll open it up. Uh, you studied how a company's response to negative publicity in different scenarios affects consumer attitude. What advice do you have for communicators from what you've learned? So negative uh, uh, information is a very difficult thing to deal with, especially in this age where uh, people can tweet and uh, put stuff up on websites irresponsibly. And uh, people do believe in that. Uh, there is an old uh, literature out there called uh, belief persistence uh, literature. Uh, in that uh, area of research, people talked about how one can create a rumor and just because you created the rumor and people were exposed to it, they start believing it. And it takes so much effort for you to get rid of that. And people still have that leftover in their minds. Um, to give you a simple example, in one of the studies, what they would do is to say, firefighting is the most dangerous profession on earth. And that's what they tell them. In fact, they have done some research to show that if you are a firefighter, you have 10 times more chance of dying uh, in your profession than any other profession. It's all false stuff. Just create this message just to give it to people. And then they read all the stuff and they say, hey, you know, what do you think about firefighting? Everybody says it's bad, it's dangerous, whatnot. And then they say, look, you know, we just gave it to you to see whether you believe it or not. This is all completely wrong. In fact, the data show that firefighting is no different from any other profession in terms of... Uh, fatality on job, and so on and so forth. Six months later, when you ask them the question, what is the most dangerous profession, they, can, they say firefighting. Doesn't matter, even though you told them it's not, doesn't matter. So negative information has this kind of lingering effect on people. And we shouldn't be scared. There's no way we should be scared. We have to discredit the negative information because we have to be prepared. Transparency helps in all cases. So whenever there is uh, any time, anything that's happening that's negative, if there is guilt, admit it. It's much easier to take care of it after that than trying to cover it up. The second thing is there is a general belief that if you are a, a, a group like this, you know, we are all working to help our students, we are all people, and other people seem to expect incompetence 
from us once in a while. That's okay. If you just say, oh man, you know, I made a mistake, they're fine with it. What they don't expect or don't condone is immorality from people. So if we do something like covering it up or trying to do bad things, that's what people don't like. So when there is negative information out there, the first thing to make sure is we deal with it head on. Number two, clean up our processes if there's a problem and tell them that this is what we are doing. We also have seen some subtle tactics that we can use in marketing, which may not be the right ones uh, uh, to be used in an educational institution, but I think I can tell you the example of uh, um, the Ford Explorer. If you guys remember how there was a consumer reports uh, uh, article. Exploder. (coughs) Yeah. (coughs) It was the one that was uh, flipping, right? The Explorer was less stable is how the report came out. 73% 73% more likely that you will tip over if you're riding an Explorer than any other car. And the response that Explorer uh, people, well, it was actually the tires were also having the problem. It was the uh, That's where the nickname yeah. came from, yeah. So the, the tipping uh, incident that happened, the response that Ford gave was interesting. They said that the Consumer Reports people compared Ford Explorer to other cars, which is the wrong comparison, you have to compare with other SUVs. And then they showed that the rate at which they would flip is about the same across all the SUVs, right? It's not just my problem, it's everybody's problem. So that's called a, a diagnosticity uh, problem. It means you're, you're, you're actually taking away the diagnosticity of the information. That's not meaningful anymore. If everybody has the same problem, that's not a problem. Right? It's maybe at the product level, it has to be taken care of, not at the brand level. So we can actually um, subtly sometimes hint at things like this, saying, well, I don't know what you're talking about because this is a process that's followed by a hundred other schools, including the Ivy League schools. Then they calm down a little bit. Oh, I didn't know that because they normally don't. They complain about what happened to them. So we have ways of dealing with negative information. But the critical thing uh, that I have discovered in this process is, first, um, respect the consumer. Uh, We seem to sometimes say that consumers are stupid and they don't know what they're talking about. Actually, consumers are very smart. They just don't have time for us. And so they process information in small bites. And therefore, respect the consumer and give them the information that they're looking for. And don't assume anything less than that about the consumer. Secondly, when there is something negative that happens, make sure that you take care of it immediately because the first thing to do is to respond. Uh, If something happens and if you just try to do some internal work, uh, pending investigation, I don't want to talk to you, all that stuff consumers don't care about. What they care about is I will look into it and when I find out what it is, I'll come back and take care of you. That's what they want to hear because somebody is acting on this. And even if you come back and tell them what you said was not happening, here are the things that happened, they're okay with that. But uh, you need to respond, you need to take care of it. And then, of course, you have to balance it. There is a lot of flippant stuff that happens out there. People say all kinds of things. You don't have to respond to everything. But if there is a serious complaint which you believe kind of points to some underlying problem within your organization, you have to address it, you have to be open about it. And and, and there is literature that shows, and then we all know that... uh, if there is a brand that has no problems and you keep going and at some point you ask consumers what is the likelihood you will buy this brand again, it's about 90%, let's say, highly satisfied consumers. 
if there is the same brand, it goes on, everybody's buying it, and then there was a problem, and the problem was resolved, and then it goes on, and then you ask them, what is the likelihood you'll buy the brand again? It's 98%. Having a little bit of a problem and having resolution actually increases the commitment to the brand, which is what they talk about marriages as well, right? Having a little conflict is actually good, because when you resolve it, then it becomes a stronger marriage. So that's, that's what we are learning from uh, this literature. All right, thank you. Well, I just want to thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.